Lustrous Pinnacle I was leaving Julius's bar in the West Village of New York City the night after Elizabeth Taylor died, and I saw this copy of the New York Times lying on a table among the empty beer bottles. I just snapped it. Every month there is a party at Julius's called Mattachine, which John Cameron Mitchell throws. It's full of fun, counter-culture-y, queer people, the kind of night I think Liz would have loved. Everyone was talking about her that evening. Above all, it felt as though we'd lost an ally. A really long-term and loyal ally. I met her once in L.A. I was invited to Carrie Fisher's birthday party and was uncharacteristically early. Like, really early. I was the first to arrive. Next was Liz. She was helped in by her driver, and she plopped down in a comfy seat in the entrance hall, I presume so she could have a good look at everyone as they arrived. I was hovering nearby, totally awestruck. I introduced myself, and we made some banal small talk about the weather and such, and then I totally clammed up. There was an embarrassing pause. She started to shuffle things around in her handbag, and I excused myself and went into one of the main rooms and asked the barman for a stiff drink. Suddenly. Carrie appeared. She'd been running around doing hostessy finishing touches, expecting her one-time stepmother to be kept entertained by yours truly, so when she saw me, she wasted no time in chastising me for reneging on my duties. What are you doing here? She asked like a disappointed schoolmom. Do you know how many homosexuals would like to be in your position right now? I opened my mouth to speak, but before I could utter a syllable, she continued, Get back in there and flank that legend. And so I did. I grabbed my drink and walked back into the hall and blurted out like the errant ingrate I was, Elizabeth, I am here to flank you. She let loose the first of many cackles, patted the cushion next to her, and I sat down beside her. We began to chit-chat. She told me she had recently fallen, and I asked her the circumstances. Apparently, she had been eating dinner at home and stood up to leave the table, but, having left something, made to sit down again to retrieve it. Not realising her maid had already pulled away the chair, she fell to the ground and injured herself. Was there much pain? I asked in concern. The screen siren looked straight at me for a moment then rolled her violet eyes back into her head, took in a breath and clutched one bejeweled hand to her chest. She grabbed my hand with her other, as though she were reliving the pain of the fall at that very moment. It was riveting. There was silence for a few seconds. She opened her eyes and stared at me, her face a blank mask. She was still clutching my hand, and I wasn't sure if I should release myself from her grip. I suppose I wasn't sure if the performance was over or not. It wasn't. Alan, she growled like the cat on the hot tin roof she still was. You have never seen such a black ass. My mouth gaped open in an involuntary gasp. I waited just a beat longer. Then, with the most saucy twinkle in my eye I had ever mustered, threw down my slam dunk. Oh, Elizabeth, I said. I bet I have. Suddenly, her hand unlocked from mine and slapped me across the chest. She cackled like a trucker who'd just heard a good fart joke. We got on like a house on fire after that. Pretty soon she was showing me her bling. 
She proffered her hand with the enormous Krupp diamond ring Richard Burton had given her in 1968. I told her I'd seen smaller New York apartments. Another cackle. Can I touch it? I asked, mesmerized. Just don't leave your fingerprints on it, she quipped. I could leave my whole handprint on that thing, I retorted. Soon the party began to fill up, and as people came over to pay their respects to the legend, I felt it was time to vacate my cushion next to her. Elizabeth, I whispered in her ear. I'm deflanking now. All right, darling, she said. Be careful.